Hey everybody, this is Hal Elrod, and before we dive into today's episode of the podcast, I wanted to take just a minute, maybe a minute and a half, to uh, let you know about my latest book and the newest book in the Miracle Morning book series. It's The Miracle Morning for Teachers. Elevate your impact for yourself and your students. And if you are a teacher or an administrator, or you know a teacher or administrator, The Miracle Morning for Teachers is the perfect book to both elevate the life of every teacher while simultaneously elevating the impact that they make for their students. And it really goes back, gosh, seven plus years ago, when I first wrote The Miracle Morning, the original book, I had this vision where, what if it was practiced every day in classrooms around the world? What if students started their day with meditation, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, and journaling? And that vision became a reality in February 2019, when my co-author and co-creator of the Miracle Morning Book Series, Honoré Quarter, led a group of dozens of teachers around the world to implement the six daily practices of the Miracle Morning, known as the Savers, into their classrooms for 30 days and beyond. And the results, both for the teachers and the students, were absolutely remarkable. We heard things like some of my most troubled students are now focused and calm and they thank me every day that we're doing the Miracle Morning together. And those stories, those results, that feedback helped to shape the book that we are now on a mission to get in the hands of every teacher in the world, right? That's the the ultimate goal. So you can grab a copy of the Miracle Morning for Teachers on Amazon, you know, for yourself or your favorite teacher. You get the audiobook on Audible. And either way, this book really is the next step in the Miracle Morning mission, which is to elevate the consciousness of humanity one morning, one teacher, and one student at a time. And I am so grateful for your support. Thank you so much. Hello, and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Hello, my friends. It's Hal Elrod. Welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast. And uh, today is extremely special for me. The conversation that I just finished up that I'll uh, tell you about here in a second, I've been looking forward to this for 20 years. 20 years ago in 1999, I read a book called Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And that book fundamentally changed my life more than arguably any other. I'd say that, you know, it's a short list of conversations with God, the untethered soul, love yourself like your life depends on it. There's a few, those are the three probably top spiritual books that I've read. And I've gifted the book Conversation with God to more people than any other. Or I used to hesitate when people ask me, what's your favorite book? It's Conversations with God. But I, I, I would often not share that I would, I would choose another. It was an insecurity over our audience, our community is of all different spiritual backgrounds and religious backgrounds and atheist you know, backgrounds and various belief systems. And I was acting out of fear where I went, well, gosh, I, I don't want to you know, say conversation with God and then anyone that maybe doesn't believe in God or views God in a lens of religious dogma, whatever it may be, I didn't want to alienate anyone. And you're going to actually hear that uh, the largest problem facing humanity right now is alienation. You'll hear that today in the conversation that I have with Neil, but I didn't want to alienate anyone. And then, I don't know, a year or so ago, I'm not sure when it was, but 
I finally realized I'm not being authentic by not saying that, you know, if I had one book to choose, I would choose Conversations with God. And as you'll hear today, I, I won't share the story twice because I, I tell it to Neil, but how I discovered that book by a friend who wasn't necessarily the most spiritual friend. And there's a lot of skepticism from him and even from me um, around, you know, this conversation with God, so to speak, that Neil initially had over 20 years ago, or gosh, for him now it's 30 some years, I think, but how it was one of the most profound books, the wisdom in that book. I've read the book at least three or four times, always revisiting it. And but Neil has 37 books. I've read probably seven or eight of them. And yeah, let me actually give you an official intro for Neil so you know who you're about to hear from. Neil Donald Walsh is a modern-day spiritual messenger whose words continue to touch the world in profound ways. With an early interest in religion and a deeply felt connection to spirituality, Neil spent the majority of his life thriving professionally, yet searching for spiritual meaning before experiencing his now-famous conversation with God. The Conversations with God series of books that emerged from those encounters has been translated into 37 languages, touching millions of lives and inspiring important changes in their day-to-day lives. And again, I can attest that I am one of those millions of people whose lives have been transformed by Neil's work and his books, and I hope you enjoy this conversation that I have been waiting 20 years to have as much as I did. Well, Neil, uh, now that we are officially capturing this via technology, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. No, the, 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 the thanks is mine to offer to you. I appreciate anyone who wants to spend a moment sharing the wonderful messages that have come through for all of us in the Conversations with God dialogues. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. How may, how may I serve you in this moment? Well, you know, I was, I was mentioning to you uh, before we started recording that I, uh, your latest book, The, the Essential Path, I, I read uh, probably about four or five, six months ago, and, uh, and I've read Conversations with God, book one, book two, book three, book four, uh, Home with God, and, and quite a few others. I discovered the first Conversations with God book back in 2000, 2000 actually, uh, when I was 20 years old, so half a lifetime ago, I'm, I'm 40 now, and it was recommended by a friend who is very... Uh, He's a very left-brained, logical, you know, analytical mind. And he recommended this book. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem like a book you'd recommend. And he said, Hal, look, he said, when, I, when it was recommended to me, I was skeptical. You know, this conversation with God, what's that business about? And he said, I started reading it. And what I found is that he said, the wisdom contained in the book, I got to the point where I go, I don't know if this is God talking or Neil talking or, you know, but he said, I, I don't really care because this is changing my life. That was the sales pitch, if you will, that I, that I received on book one. And I bought it and uh, kind of the same thing. I started reading, ah, just, you know, is this God talking? Is this Neil? You know, I don't, I don't, this is interesting. And, but within a matter of pages, I went, this is some of the most profound uh, wisdom I've ever come across. And that, that's how I usually describe it to, you know, to, I've gifted your book to more than any other book I've ever gifted. And so, yeah, so I, um, I thank you for, uh, for, for putting it out there. And the first, here's the first question I have for you. When you wrote the first Conversations with God book, what, you know, the idea that, you know, you're going to publish a book that, hey, this is me talking to God and God talking back and, you know, a, a full-on two-way dialogue. I'm curious, what did you think that people would think about you claiming that you had a conversation with God? Well, you know, I didn't have those kinds of thoughts. Hmm. 
when the experience was uh, mine because uh, I didn't have any notion that anyone else would ever see what was being written. You, you understand that I, I did not sit down to write a book mm. called Conversations with God. This was um, an event in my life that was quite spontaneous and, and I thought at the outset meant only for me. So it never occurred to me that in a million gazillion years that anyone would ever see my personal private scribblings on a yellow legal pad. Hmm. And so uh, I didn't have the uh, the thought that you're wondering about because it was not part of my uh, in-the-moment reality. Now, later on in the process, I did uh, receive the following information. I was told, you will make of this one day a book. Hmm. But even then, I have. What is, I'm sorry. What is your first name? Hal. <laughs> Hal. Hal. Even even then, Hal, uh, I I did not believe it. I mean, at, at some level, I thought, yeah, of course. You know, you and a and a hundred other people are going to send your middle of the night mental meanderings to a publisher who's going to say, hold the presses. We've got to get this book out at once. This guy's talking to God. It, 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 it would never occur to me that anyone would ever publish my, as I said middle-of-the-night mental meanderings. So, so, but I, I did send um, those meanderings uh, uh, to a publisher. I had them typed out. They were all handwritten, of course. This was a handwriting experience on a yellow legal pad. But I, I, I asked a stenographer who happened to know a friend of a friend who, who was a legal secretary and a very, very good stenographer. I said, would you mind transferring these notes into, key, you know, keyboarding these notes. And she said, no, and she went ahead and did it. And that's when, I, that's when I first realized that something unusual was happening here because she called me and she said, I'm halfway through this. Where is this stuff coming from? Hmm. What, what is this? And I said, well, you know, I, I call it, I believe that I'm having a conversation with God or a conversation with a, a, a source of higher wisdom and greater clarity than I've ever experienced in my life, and I'm calling that God. And um, why do you ask? She says, says, I've never read anything like this in my life. I can't wait to continue transcribing this and and typing it out. Well, when she finished with her manuscript work, we sent it off to a number of publishers, and one of those small publishers, uh, Hampton Roads Publishing Company, agreed to publish the book. And much to my astonishment, I might I might say, much to my huge surprise, I, I recall when the man called me, I said, you're kidding. You're kidding me. You're going to publish this? He said, absolutely. It's some of the most astonishing stuff we've ever read. So they did publish it. And the rest, as they say, Hal, is publishing <laughs> history. The book went on to sell over a million copies, translated into 37 languages, and sold in every country of the world. And so, who would have thought? It was too late. Once the book was published and began selling, you know, millions of copies, it was way too late for me to worry about how people were going to react to it. Yeah. <laughs> I was past that. So, I just, I learned to live with people's reactions. But now, Hal, to, to answer your question in the fullest way, I have to say that most people's reactions have been very positive. Even those who don't believe that I actually had a conversation with God. Sure. Have allowed have allowed me to, or I should say, have indulged me what they have considered to be simply a literary device, a literary contrivance. You know, if a person did have a conversation with God, might these be some of the exchanges that could occur? So even those who don't either believe in God at all 
or believe that I had a conversation with God, or believe that such a conversation is possible, have been very indulgent. I've had very little, uh, you know, totally confrontive objection to the writing. There have been a few, but uh, relatively speaking, not a lot of uh, objection from people in the world. So the, the material has been widely received in a positive way, and as I said, translated into 37 languages, much to, again, much to my astonishment. You can find this book in bookstores uh, in Tahiti and from here to Japan, and, and, and yes, even in China, in red China, and uh, really every country of the world, including Russia and everywhere else, where you might not expect there to be such a willing reception of, of the material. In fact, in China, it was published actually by the government. That is, I mean, all publishing in China is done, is done by the government. There are no independent publishers. But the Chinese publisher, which is owned by the government, actually you know, bought the rights to the book, the foreign, foreign language rights, and published it and, and put it out in Beijing and everywhere else in China. So, and then I was invited to go to China and actually to, on a speaking tour, which I did, to three major cities in China. I only bring that up to let you know that obviously the information in the book is transnational, transsexual, transfaith. I mean, it, it crosses every border you could possibly imagine political borders, spiritual borders, social borders, and um, it's received widely uh, by everyone who reads it. So I'm very grateful for that. And then I see uh, that this experience was never intended just for me. Clearly, it was intended to be read by millions and millions of people, which it has been. Yeah, beautiful. Our your conversation with God, with when did the conversation on the yellow legal pad, what year did that begin? Gosh, um, I'm going to say 1993. I lost track. Uh, it was published 5595. So I'm going to say it was probably 1994 or 1993. I could, I could look back on my notes and get the exact date. But sure. in, in the first, uh, in the third or fourth year of the 90s, Wow. So yeah, so I discovered it good 13 years or so after uh, the book had been published. You know, in the first book, Conversations with God, book one, you write, I invite you to a new form of communication with God, a two-way communication. And now personally, you've opened me up to that communication with God. So I, I talk to God every day. I'm so uh, glad. That's the most wonderful thing you could have said to me. And it makes me feel very, very happy. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad that, that makes you happy. It makes me happy. It, it, you really, and I'm sure so many people, you gave permission to that, that kind of for people to realize, oh, I don't just have to read the Word of God or listen to the Word of God. but Or, or but, even, I don't even have to just pray to God one way. Yeah. Because that's what's happened for millions of people. They've come to realize, oh, oh my goodness. Because this, you have to understand, Hal, we're talking here about a major taboo. Most of the world's religions and most of the world's major faith traditions would allow as to how a, an actual two-way conversation with God is not possible. They would call it a blas blasphemy, heresy. Who, who do you think you are that God would talk directly to you? Uh, you know, Lily Tomlin, the wonderful uh, comedian, actually put it in, in perfect form when she said, when I tell people I pray to God every day, that I talk to God every day, they say, oh, how devout. When I tell, tell them that God talks to me every day, they say, that's insane. You're crazy. <laughs> so, so that you're having, you know, you're, you're deluding yourself. So the interesting thing that I notice here is that 
it's not commonly held that people can actually have a two-way uh, conversation with God, which is strange because it's what God desires the most, is yeah. to interact with us. For me, I find that it's when I, I quiet my mind, and, and it really is kind of a practice. It's kind of like meditation. The first time you meditate, you're, you know, most of us are terrible at it, right? And your mind's racing, and the first time you want attempts to have a two-way dialogue with God, I find that you know, it, it becomes difficult to decipher, wait, is that my voice of, you know, of, of my past, my insecurity, my subconscious, or is that a vo- the voice of a, of a higher a higher power, a higher intelligence. You know, I know you believe that anyone can talk to God. So I guess the big not, 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 that, not, not that anyone can talk to God. Everyone is talking to God. So how do we do it or how do we decipher it? How do we know that we're doing it for someone? Well, you know, the question is answered uh, in the first 10 pages of book one. And we're talking about 4,000 pages of dialogue in all of the conversations with God books. But your question is answered in the first 10 of those 4,000 pages of dialogue. Because I asked, of course, the exact same, same question. How do I know? And you may remember from those first 10 pages that God said, mine is always the highest truth, the grandest joy, the greatest freedom. Truth, joy, and freedom. If, if the information you're receiving does not feel like truth, joy, and freedom, that is, if it comes from fear or apprehension or being scared of something, uh, or being cautious, you know, at t- to the level of paralysis and so forth, then you you can rest assured that it's not the voice of the highest wisdom that resides within you. But if the feeling you're receiving, when the words that you're hearing, are uh, feelings of joy and freedom, and uh, I, w- I want to add fearlessness, uh, feelings of expansion and not contraction, those those words are probably emanating. Uh, in the place of uh, highest wisdom that resides within all of us. Beautiful. I uh, I actually, the other day, uh, I was waking my 10-year-old daughter up, and uh, I don't remember, I I don't know if I started with a prayer, I don't know how I got on the topic, but I I, kind of coached her, if you will, um, on that. I said, sweetheart, I said, you know that you can talk to God and hear God anytime. And she said, what do you mean? And uh, how do you know? And I said, I said, I said, it's it's to me, it's that it's that inner voice. It's what you. I mean, you just said it so beautifully, Neil. But the way that I told her is, I said, it's it's that inner voice. I said, you know, it's always telling you what you know in your heart is right, right? The highest truth, the highest wisdom, joy, freedom. I said, you know, for example, if you want to tell a lie, but you know in your heart there's a voice saying, tell the truth, right? Be be honest, speak the truth. I said, that's the voice of, of God, of, of higher consciousness. And uh, I think she said, Dad, it's seven o'clock in the morning. I don't, I, I can't, you know, this is too intense for me. There's wisdom for you. This is not the, I'm not ready for this. I'm still half asleep. So, um, so uh, that, that, that statement could be made by half the human race, by the way. Oh, sure. Even, sure. even I, mean, I mean, 50-year-old people in the middle of the day could say the same thing. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm not ready for this. I'm half asleep. Mm. Well, and I find, right, that when the brain is, is it, uh, gosh, from alpha, data, delta, whichever, the waves that you have first thing in the morning, last thing before bed, right? That, that is typically when I find that it is the, you know, the, the, the prime time to, to tap into that wisdom. And because you're, you're slowed down enough to actually you know, listen versus in the middle of the day when, while it's always available, um, you know, you're too busy, you're rushed, you're, you're noisy, the radio's on, you know. Stuff's uh, going on. Yeah, you got stuff going on. Do you have a practice uh, to talk with 
God and, and highest, highest intelligence? Do you have a daily practice that you actually partake in? No. And, and, I, and I'm really sorry. I hate to have to answer that question. I'm going to ask that question a lot. Mm. And I don't want to disappoint people, but I don't. I don't have a daily meditation practice. I don't have a, any kind of uh, routine, if you please, or practice around this process. I, I will say that I write every day, almost every day of my life. I'm writing something to someone or, you know, or, or to myself. Uh, and if there was a practice, uh, that would be it. Uh, but that happens sporadically, that is, uh, throughout the day, not at a particular time, like every day at 1 o'clock or every day at 5 or whatever, or even first thing in the morning. But I'm, I'm writing every day of my life, usually on my website where people send questions to, to me at Ask Neil. And, and then they ask me all kinds of questions. I, I in fact, just before getting on this uh, interview, I was answering questions. Uh, in the Ask Neil column. So I am constantly being invited, I was going to use the word called upon, mm. constantly being called upon to reach into that place of, of divine wisdom that resides, I want to say again, within all of us. Yeah. I'm constantly being invited to make that connection and call forth from that space what I have understood to be what's so. And in response to people's uh, questions, when they send them to me, I'd ask Neil. So, so I'm. Uh, if I did have a practice, that would be it. But I don't have a practice in the sense of yeah, every day at seven a.m. he meditates, sure, or whatever, whatever it is, because I simply don't. I'm, you know, I, 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 I've always been against any kind of regular practice, even exercise or dieting in a certain way or taking care of myself on a regular routine. I've never been when I when I once when I used to have a job. I, at one point in my life, I actually worked for a living uh, for an organization. <laughs> and af after I was there about ten years, they put a sign on my office door: "Don't try to discipline this guy; just tap his genius." <laughs> I remember when they put that sign. Of course, I tore it down immediately. I didn't want anyone to think <laughs> that I that I thought of myself that way. But people around me realized: Hey, you know what? Don't try to discipline him. If you think he's going to come every come in here every day at nine o'clock and leave at five, this is not a nine to five guy. He might not come in till noon tomorrow, but you could just as easily find him here at eight thirty at night, way past closing time, because he does what he does when he wants to do it, and that's the story of my life. It's a beautiful way to live. It's one that I'm uh, I'm I'm leaning into. My wife's much more that way, much more spontaneous, and I'm much more. Uh, what they, I think they would call it OCD would be a, 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 a clinical diagnosis or regimented at least. Regimented. Yeah, having a sense of this has to be done here and this has to be done there, and and but I I never was that way. So the uh, the CWG experience that is the conversations with God encounter was right in keeping with the, uh, with my personality from the beginning. Mm. Looking at the, uh, I'm actually on Amazon right now and just scanning the conversations with God books, and I see the first one published in '96. Uh, not sure when. Five, 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 five ninety-five. I thought the public, the actual publication. Oh. I couldn't forget it because it's so symmetrical. Ah, uh, it yeah. was five five ninety-five. I and I did the same thing. The Miracle Morning published twelve twelve twelve. There you go. And I always say because I've got a terrible memory and I wanted a date that I that I wouldn't forget. But so here's a question for you uh, around the book. So the first book published in 95, and then according to 
what's on Amazon, Conversation with God, book three, and obviously there was a book two in between, book three published in 98. So there's about a three-year span for the first three books. And then book four published in 2017. So we've got three years for the first three books. Now you've written 37 books total, to make sure that's said, but three years for book one, book two, book three, and then 19 years before book four published. And uh, I'm curious as to uh, what, what was the the serendipity between the, the, the gap in, in uh, the first three to the fourth? Well, let, let's first talk about the gap in the first three, as opposed because what became book one and two was already written. That is, uh, my, my experience had already occurred when, when Hampton Roads chose to publish the, the notes, that, literally the handwritten notes that I scribbled out on the yellow legal pad. And so that, those notes became book one and two. Uh, they were way too extensive to, for, to put them into a single book. So sure. they put them into two different books. They called it book one and book two. In the meantime, I had, said, I had then become aware that, oh my goodness, millions of people, I mean, millions of people are reading what's coming off of this pen. And that, that was the first time I had encountered that phenomenon, that awareness in my life. And so you know, putting pen to paper from that point on felt very nerve-wracking. I mean, it, it, imagine how it would feel if, if a person began writing a letter or, or an email or whatever and thought that, you know, 15 million people are going to read this. So it might be a little bit uh, inhibiting. And uh, so what became Book 3 took a long time, over a year and a half, uh, to materialize, if you will, and to complete itself because I was keenly aware that every word I was writing was now going to be read around the world. And that, that uh, had a tremendous uh, impact on me. With regard to the gap between that and book four, many books occurred between uh, them, between book three and book four. Book, book four is called book four, not because it was the fourth book I wrote, but because it was the fourth book that contained the title, Conversations with God. But between Conversations with God, Book 3, and CWG, Book 4, there were uh, six or seven other books, uh, Friendship with God, Tomorrow's God, Home with God, and other books in the With God series. Uh, but I have to say that when I finished writing Home with God, which was um, around 1995, the book Home with God was complete, I thought that the experience of conversations with God in book-length form, and all of us are having conversations with God all the time, and you never stop having them. We simply call they call them something else. But I thought that book-length, ongoing conversations, of the likes of which are found in the first seven conversations with God dialogues, I thought that that process was over. Hmm. And then almost 20 years later, I woke up uh, in August, of, of that year, and, and, and I, with the same feeling that I had had before, but I hadn't had that feeling in almost 20 years, that feeling that something wants to happen, something wants to come through, and it's going to be a book-length something. It's not going to be a, a paragraph or a thought or an idea or a fleeting notion. It's a book-length message that wants to come through. So I threw the covers back uh, of my bed. This was at 4.15 in the morning. And I raced to my computer because I hadn't had that feeling in a very long time. And I said, you know, essentially, okay, 
you know, what you got? What, what's going on? <laughs> and and then came through uh, the information in book four that uh, where I was invited to and told to awaken the species. And, and I was invited to invite others. The book is an open invitation to all of humanity yeah. to awaken the species because the time has come for us to recognize we cannot continue moving forward on the path that we've taken. We, 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 we need to change direction uh, or the species is going to be in uh, some considerable difficulty. Yeah, that uh, book four was, I, I, I had a lot of friends that I called that are, you know, uh, that, that are on a mission in their own way to impact our species and uh, our planet. And I said that you, you've got to read this book. This is kind of the, the playbook, if you will, for people that are really committed. And hopefully it's all of humanity that's really committed to, uh, to change our ways uh, moving forward. For me, I read book one in, it was actually 1999, I just realized, and 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago. Uh, and when I finished it, I had never felt so complete. So it, it felt, it, the book felt so complete. It felt perfect. You, every question you asked, as you asked it, I went, oh, I'm, God, I, would, I would love to, I'm so curious. I would love to know the answer. And then you read the answer and you go, gosh, that makes more sense than anything that I've ever heard before or learned. And I, I knew there was a book too. And I, I, I'm curious if you've ever gotten this before. I didn't want to read it. In this weird way, book one felt so complete and perfect that, you know, it's, it's a very odd line of thinking, but I thought I can't imagine, I couldn't imagine how it could get any better than that. And it was uh, probably a year later, I was talking to a good friend of mine and, and book uh, Conversation with God book series came up and we were talking about book one. And he said, have you read book two? I said, no. I said, it's weird, but I feel so complete with book one. I've reread book three times now. I, I just, I don't feel like I need to read book two. And he said, you've got to read book two. He said, the, the conver- is my, as great as book one is, it, it, so is book two, so is book three. The conversation just continues. And I'm just curious, if I'm the only person you've ever heard that from, or if, if people have ever shared that book one felt so complete, they just, they felt content and they didn't need to keep reading. And that's what I felt until I kept reading. I went, oh my gosh, how did I wait so long to read book two? Well, other people may have felt that, but no one has ever said that to me. <laughs> so, so you, but you, it's understandable that you would because you're a weird person. Uh, that's very, yeah, thank you. I, that is absolutely true. That's the title of your next book, by the way. I'm a weird person. I'm a weird person. Yeah. I'm the miracle of weirdness or something. There you uh, go. Uh, now, in your newest book, so let's talk about the new book, The Essential Path. You know, it's, it's hard to pick a favorite, but but this this is arguably, uh, I mean, I, I guess it's recency bias, but just, I loved this book. And one of the things I love about it is it is shorter than the others. And I do love a book, right, where you can get just profound wisdom. I mean, this book is dog-eared and underlined uh, every almost every single page where you can gain so much wisdom in, you know, in a shorter read and in less time. In this book, you address a lot of really uh, important questions, thought-provoking questions. And I chose just a few of my favorite. And, and I think the first one is, is about as profound as a question gets. I'd love to hear if you can share uh, a little insight on the answer. And that question is, what is the biggest problem in the world today? The biggest problem in the world today is that most people don't know what the biggest problem in the world today is. Hmm. They can see the they can see the outcome of the problem. They can see the fallout from the problem. They can see the impact and the effect of the problem, but they don't know what's causing that fallout. What's causing that effect? Now you know, 
you know you've got a real problem when you can see the impact of the problem, but you don't know what's causing it. It's like the analogy that I like to use is like getting in your car in the morning and you know, to go somewhere and, and it, it, it won't start. Suddenly the car won't start and you don't know why. You know you got the, you can see the impact. You can't get the car started, but you have no idea why. You throw the hood open. Is something disconnected? Am I out of gas? You, you, you follow all the lines of logic and you can't find any uh, solution. You, don't have, you can't even identify the cause. You simply know that the car won't start. Well, uh, that's a wonderful analogy, and most people have had that experience at least once in their life. What's going on here? Why is this happening? And we don't know why, why what's happening is happening. So the biggest problem in the world today, it's a huge problem, is that we can see the fallout of the problem, but we don't know what's causing that fallout, so we don't know what the problem is. That's a huge problem when you don't know what the problem is. The fallout, I can put in one word, alienation. You're seeing a level of alienation on this planet, the likes of which I've never seen in my 76 years on Earth. People are suddenly more alienated than ever before, from culture to culture, religion to religion, society to society, race to race, even between the genders. It's unbelievable how we've allowed ourselves to become alienated vociferously alienated, in some cases violently alienated uh, from each other. And we don't know, we, we don't seem to know how to unalienate, if I could coin a word, we don't seem to know how to reverse the tide, how to unalienate ourselves. Even people, and this is not a political commentary on one human being, but even people at the highest levels of government, not just in this country, but around the world, are saying, suddenly saying things that are absolutely dividing the people of their various nations and alienating humanity one segment from another. And that's going to be the end of us. If we don't start getting our act together and begin behaving in a different way toward each other by holding different beliefs about each other, uh, we're going to see the end of us be before we know it, and not in the next 10 weeks or the next 10 years, but, but before my grandchildren are my age, it's going to be a very difficult place to live on this planet unless we stop alienating each other. But we can't stop, Hal, unless we figure out why. What's causing this sudden wave of massive alienation where everyone who's different in any way is wrong? And we get to demonize differences. I'm going to write a book one day called Demonizing Differences. <laughs> Let's stop it. You should add the un in there. Undemonized differences. Let's start yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So how do you see that? That's, that's not a bad idea, by the way, Hal. I mean, I'm going to have to give you 3% of the proceeds <laughs> for that book. Undemonizing differences. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you see as a solution for, at least at the... Well, whether it's the individual or the collective level. So for people listening today, if, if right, one of the, the fallout from this problem is the alienation, what can we individually do? And, and, and let me ask you this. Here's a really, just a really honest question is that... You mean the other ones have been lies? The other ones have been lies. Can we do enough, right? I, I guess I should say a hard question, right? Which is, what can we do? Kind of like if you're talking about global warming, like, hey, let's recycle. Well, is that enough, right? Or is it, is, it, is it forces larger than us, governments and organizations, corporations that are acting in, in, that has such a larger impact on the planet, on society, on our species that, yeah, you can recycle all you want, but you know, it's going to take a billion people doing this or doing that. So, so I guess there's two questions there, which is one is what can we do? And two is, is it even enough? 
There is no force in the universe that is more powerful than love. Mm. So the answer to your question, is it enough, uh, is yes, it'll be more than enough because there's no force in the universe more powerful than love. Love is uh, the common denominator. It's what every living entity seeks to experience and to express. There's not a single person in the world at some level, even murderers and terrorists and people who we think of as, you know, not very nice, not very nice beings. There's not a single person in the world who does not want to love and be loved. And it is the universal common denominator. So the question then would be, what could cause people, if I could use a metaphor, to press the love button? What could cause people to love each other in a way that would be enough, that would eliminate alienation, that would allow us to move past our differences, and that would uh, cause us to move once again toward the unity uh, that we seek with all human beings and, and with everything uh, that lives? You know, and, and the, the answer is we have to change our fundamental belief. We, we, human beings, as I have observed it, as I have been told in my, in my conversations with God, have embraced a notion that I could put into one word, separation. We have decided that we live in a, a cosmology of separation where everything is separate from everything else. Codependent, perhaps. Coexistent, for sure but separate nonetheless. And so we see ourselves as being separate from everyone and everything. And it starts with our understanding of our relationship with what we call God. I don't know whether many of our listeners are aware of this, but probably 85%, and not probably, actually statistically proven, that around 85% of the world's people believe in a higher power of some sort, they may not use the same word or describe it in the same way, but the largest number of human beings, by far, not 51%, but something like 80 or 85% of human beings on the planet hold an inner idea that there is some kind of higher power. But they also hold the idea, the vast majority of those people, hold the notion that that higher power is other than us. It's separate from us. And so they engage in what I've called a separation theology. Now, the problem with a the separation theology, I mean, you know, if, if that's what people believe, fair enough. I mean, you know, fair enough. You, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. If it started and ended there, we could probably live with it. But the problem with a the separation theology is that it doesn't stop there. Because a separation theology inevitably produces a separation cosmology. That is a cosmological holding among all the world's people that we live in a milieu, if you please, of separation, where not only are we separate from the thing we call God, but we're separate from everything else. The tree is over there, the birds up there in the sky, the planets beyond the sky, you know, in, 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 the, in the stratosphere, and the, and the other people around us. We're all separate from each other. So we, we live in a cosmology of separation. And you know what? Even that could be livable if it ended there. But it doesn't end there because a separation cosmology inevitably produces a separation psychology. That is an individual psyche that holds that, oh my God, I'm all alone out here. It's me against the world. I'm, it's just, I'm over here and you're over there. I'm on this end of the phone and you're on that end of the phone. And there's, and there's no connection between us. And so we begin to, and the, with the awful illness of loneliness, 
uh, and the feeling of separation is what sponsors 80% of humanity's ills. Humanity, and I don't mean just mental, emotional ills. I mean even their physical ills yeah. sponsored by the feeling of separation. But you know what, Alan? Even that could be tolerated. We could even live with that if it ended there because we could find a way to heal that feeling of separation. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. Because a separation psychology inevitably produces a separation sociology. That is, entire societies that group together and create smaller groups within the whole in order to end and heal their feeling of separation. So we join political parties, we join religions, we join clubs and organizations and groups of every kind, and we claim our membership in other groups that are formed spontaneously. We call them races and genders. We give them all sorts of names, and we belong to that group. And so we have, we have a sociology that has created itself into smaller groupings, nations, and political parties, etc., etc. And you know what? The problem with that is that it's tribalism. We've sunken back into tribalism. And the difficulty with that tribalism is it inevitably produces a separation pathology. That is, pathological behaviors of self-destruction observable throughout human history and to this very minute that we live in a, in a world, we live on a planet where chiefs of state, heads of, of nations are verbally taunting each other, my missile is bigger than yours. Hmm. And if you're not careful, we will annihilate you and wipe you off the face of the earth or we'll do it economically with sanctions and other economic manipulations. And you know, wow. So we live on a pathological planet. It's a pathological planet. Like guppies, we're eating our own young. We're eating ourselves to death. And we can't figure out why. And the answer is so simple. To embrace the theological, psychological, and sociological truth of our oneness. In fact, we are all one. We're afraid to do that, Hal, because we think that oneness means loss of identity. Hmm. But look at the fingers of your hand. This is what God invited me to do in conversations with God when she had this conversation with me. She said, Neil, just put your hand in front of your face. Open the fingers of your hand. Are they identical? No, they're not. You have not lost their individual identity. Your thumb looks remarkably different from your little finger. Your forefinger looks remarkably different from your ring finger. The fingers of your hand are all different shapes and sizes, and they all perform different functions. Yet they are not separate from each other. They are part of the hand, and they are unified. They are individual, but not separate. And even as all of you are part of the hand of God, I could, of course, be wrong about all of this. <laughs> I was, I was going to suggest that. No, but I don't wow. think so. I don't, th I don't think so either. There's a question in the book that you ask, also in in, in the new book, in the Essential Path, and uh, I don't think that we've covered this in what you've shared. I've been listening closely, but correct me if I'm wrong. The question I just asked you about, or, or, or uh, pointed out, what is the biggest problem in the world today? Another question that I'd written down that you ask and address in the essential path is what is the most important question facing humanity today? Can we touch on that? Who are you? Hmm. 
The most important question facing humanity today is, who are you? You know, my father asked me this question. My father was one of the great metaphysicians of all time. He just didn't know it. Because huh. from the time I was nine years old, he was asking me the world's greatest metaphysical question. Who the hell do you think you are anyway? I can recall my father asking me that when I was 16. Who do you think you are? Of course, he didn't mean it as a <laughs> metaphysical inquiry. It wasn't a spiritual, yeah, sure. But he was touching on the most powerful question we could ever ask ourselves and the most meaningful inquiry we could ever make. Indeed, there are four fundamental questions of life. Who am I? Where am I? Why am I where I am? And what do I intend to do about that? My dear Hal, most of the world's people live their entire lives and never ask themselves any of those questions. And yet they are the four fundamental questions of life. And when they are asked and answered on a daily basis, they can change your life in 30 minutes. What are your answers to those questions, Neil? And are they fixed or are they changing day by day? Who am I? I am an individuation of divinity, an aspect of God, separate from God in no way whatsoever. But God made man, or if you please, God physicalized. I am the physical representation of divinity itself. And I'm not saying that I am God in the sense that I am all that God is. I am saying that I am as a wave is to the ocean. Mm. One wouldn't say, hey, you know, the wave is not a part of the ocean. The wave is something other than the ocean. No one would make that claim. The average person would say, well, of course, the wave is a singular expression of the ocean. It's not the entirety of the ocean, but it's a singular and powerful and beautiful expression of the ocean, even as you are a singular and powerful and beautiful expression of divinity. So who I am is a wave on the ocean of God. Where am I? Where I am is in the realm of the physical as opposed to the realm of the spiritual. And I am in the realm of the physical for a very specific reason that I might know and understand what it means to be who I am and experience it, that I can, that I can know experientially what it means to be who I really am, which is the answer to the third question. Why am I where I am? I have chosen deliberately to come to the realm of the physical that I might know myself as who I am, which is, by the way, the same reason that every human being and every sentient being in the cosmos, not just people on this planet, but throughout the universe, has allowed themselves to physicalize. What do I intend to do about that is the fourth question. And I answer that question every moment of every day. When I awaken and move into the kitchen and have my morning encounter with my beloved spouse, the words that I say to the first person I see when I leave the house for whatever errand I'm running, the way I am, the way I am being, the way I'm presenting and representing myself, the way I experience myself through my thoughts, my words, and every deed, that's my answer to the question, what do you intend to do about that? If I really believe that I'm an individuation of divinity, in what way am I choosing to demonstrate, express, and experience that? Those are the questions that have been answered by the way they lived their lives, by people like Buddha, Lao Tzu, Jesus, Muhammad, Mother Teresa, 
And all the great saints and sages, both men and women through the centuries, have asked and answered that question, and their lives stand as living monuments Hmm. to their responses, even as your life can stand in the same way. But, you know, my dear Hal, maybe one out of a thousand people even consider such responses, much less commit internally to living them. Well, I'd imagine that you asking those questions and answering those questions from your truth will inspire many thousands listening to this to ask those questions and, and answer them and, and discover their truth. So, Neil, thank you for leading by example. By the way, there are no right answers to this question. God forbid this should turn into dogma or doctrine <laughs> or, hel- heaven help me, a new religion. This is not that, and I want to make it very clear to anyone who's listening to this. There are no right or wrong answers to this question to those questions. There are only the answers that you give to them, because every moment is an opportunity for you to recreate yourself anew in the next grandest version of the greatest vision ever you held about who you are. That's the purpose of life, Mm. to recreate yourself anew in the next grandest version of the greatest vision ever you held about who you are. But here's the catch. Most people don't even have that vision. If you walk down the street with a clipboard or go to the local shopping mall and approach 100 people, hey, I'm taking a little survey. Would you mind participating? Most people will say, yeah, what what you got? say, well, my first question is, what is the grandest version of the greatest vision ever you had about who you are? They look at you like you came from Mars. Hmm. I've done this. Yeah. They look at you like you came from another planet. What? What are you asking me? I'm asking you, what is the greatest vision you ever had about who you are? Mm-hmm. And it stops people cold. And then I say to them, with gentle observation, may I share with you, that until you become clear about that, you won't have any idea what in the world you're doing here on this planet. You don't even know what you're doing. You don't even know what you're up to. You're living literally event by event and trying to make the best of it. What an interesting way to live a life. And then you put your head on the pillow in the final moments of your experience, and you go, wait a minute, was that it? Hmm. Was that it? Is there nothing more than that? My father used to say something to me that has struck me through the years. He once looked at me when he was 83. There were no tears in his eyes, but there were sound of tears in his voice, the sound of regret. He looked at me and he said, so old, so soon, so smart, so late. Hmm. So old, so soon, so smart, so late. Neil, what you just said, I, I want to repeat this, at least as I in- wrote it down, so you can correct me if I missed something, but to me, this so much I've gotten from our conversation, and for anyone listening, th- this may have been, you know, if I had to choose a gem, it was what you just said about the purpose of life is to recreate yourself anew in the grandest version of the greatest vision you've ever had about yourself. Is that close? Pretty close. <laughs> I love that because to me that I always I always feel that our life's purpose should be something that we can back test in every moment, right? That we can go, am I living my purpose in this moment? In <laughs> That, that purpose, how, can be reduced to one word. It's a very poetic saying of a single word, evolution. 
the purpose of my soul's experience, of my soul's existence, is evolution. That is to evolve, to in fact become the next grandest version of the greatest vision ever I held about who I am. That's called evolution. And so we get to look at all the events of our life and ask ourselves as those events arise, in what way is my evolution served by my response to what is now occurring? Hmm. That's a powerful question. In what way is my evolution served by my response to what is now occurring? Do you know how many people walk the streets and ask themselves that kind of a question? During the day? Only those that have read Conversations with God or one of your books. <laughs> Not many. Neil, what's now and what's next for you? What do you, in the present day and this, you know, this period of your life, what are you really focused on, committed to, passionate about, and, and what, what do you see on the horizon? I'm committed to spreading and sharing the messages of Conversations with God as rapidly and as far widespread as I can. That's, that's my commitment. I'm in the midst of writing a book. Uh, I've written 37 books. I'm in the midst of writing number 38. It's called The God Dilemma. Hmm. Let's solve it together. And it talks about that if we could resolve the God Dilemma, we could change the course of human history and the direction in which our culture, our civilization is currently moving. Uh, so, you know, that's what I do. I do workshops, retreats, programs all over the world. I do programs online. I find myself in this interesting position, and I'll probably be doing this with my last breath. I'm just constantly outflowing and seeing if you know, if it can make any kind of a difference uh, in the world as we know it. So that's that's my passion is to, and that's my exterior passion. My interior passion is to actually live. That is to walk the talk, to live what I share. And that's my biggest challenge, because you know I'm really uh, um, able to articulate this message, but stepping into the living of it moment to moment every day is not as easy for me. And so I have an opportunity to meet that challenge. I'm hoping that those around me, those close to me, those near to me, will say, even if I get there in the last five minutes of my life, you know, it was a struggle for him. He didn't walk his talk every minute. He wasn't, you know, the person you would think that's who produced those books might always be. He had his own challenges, his own faults, his own foibles, his own difficulties. But boy, the last 10 minutes, he finally got it. <laughs> you know, and I have to say that the, I don't mean that ironically, I'm hoping that somewhere in, in as I get older, I can get to a place where I can feel that I really stepped into what was given to me. Because I want this is important to make this very clear. This stuff isn't coming from me. If, if I was the source of these things that are being said, uh, I would really feel ashamed that I'm not walking my talk. But I can at least live with myself because I'm, I'm simply repeating what's being given to me. Hmm. It's coming through me. And now I'm trying to step into it like everyone else who reads the books and everyone else who hears the messages. I'm in the same group trying to step into the living of it. So if I can get there even 10 minutes before the game is over, and I have to say it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey 
I'm going to pay, all my family knows the four words I want on my tombstone. And, and they've all promised that they would make sure that those were the four words on my headstone when people visit my grave site. It's going to say, now that was fun. <laughs> I love that. I love that when you walk into my home, it says, enjoy every moment with a beautiful sunrise behind it. Because, yeah, isn't that what it's about? We're here. Might as well have fun. And how we define fun becomes the mark and the measure of our life. How do you define fun, Neil? That which brings joy, self-awareness, peace, and love to everyone whose life I touch. That's fun. Let me share something with you. A few days ago, it was Christmas Day. On Christmas morning, as we exchange our gifts with our loved ones, what moment do you feel the most inner joy? What moment do you feel has been the most fun for you? Is it when you open the gifts that someone has given you? Or is it when that loved one across the room begins to open the gift you've picked out for them that you thought about for days, maybe weeks, that you finally managed to order online or found in a store somewhere? And you can't wait for them to open it. And they open your gift, and as they're opening the gift you gave to them, your heart swells. And when you see the look on their face, you are complete. Not in the getting of the gifts. There's joy in that for sure. But the greatest joy is watching another open their gift from you. It's often been said, no one crosses your path without a gift for you in their hand. But God said to me, Neil, that's a sweet sentiment, but you've got it reversed. Oh, really? She said, Neil, it's this way. No one crosses your path without you having a gift for them in your hands. Your invitation is to decide what it is and to give it. Full out, then and there. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, Neil, I've, this has been a gift for me, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, fun is you to find it. Any last closing thoughts, words, prayers, affirmations for anyone listening? I'll close with uh, my answer to the question that I've been asked most often in all the interviews I've done over the past 25 years. Neil, of the 4,000 pages of Conversations with God Dialogues, what is the single, if you had to pick out one, the single most meaningful message that you've received? Mm. I was asked by that by you know, interviewers, you know, all over the place. And my answer is the same every time. Here is the single most important message of conversations with God in my experience. And I would, I would close with this. I ask God, why isn't my life working? What does it take to make life work? What is it I don't understand? The understanding of which would change everything. And he said, Neil, it's really very simple. <laughs> take this down. I can recall a gentle chuckle, not a derisive chuckle, but just a sweet chuckle, the way you would chuckle at a three-year-old or a four-year-old asking you a question. She said, <laughs> sweetheart, it's really very simple. You think your life is about you, but your life has nothing to do with you. It's about everyone whose life you touch and the way in which you touch it. Beautiful and true. Well, Neil, it's been an honor and a pleasure and a miracle to talk with you today. And I thank you so much for your time, your wisdom. And at 76 years young, uh, still out there 
living your truth, your purpose, and sharing the messages from Conversation with God with millions of people around the world. I'm, I'm it's such a such a wonderful life that you're, you're living, and and you're touching so many other lives with your work. And uh, I thank you for that. You're very kind to say those things, Hal. I hope that one day I can deserve them. All right. Until next time. Blessed be. Hey, Goal Achievers. This is Hal again. And uh, we just wrapped up the conversation with Neil. And this is actually the first time I've recorded an outro. I always do it during the podcast, which you probably have noticed that. And uh, I don't know why, just conversation felt so complete. I didn't want to add that in. So I'm doing it now. So I just want to say um, thanks for listening. Uh, I, I love you. I appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed that uh, time with Neil and the wisdom. I mean, that's one that I'm going to go back and listen to again. And uh, again, his new book is The Essential Path. And you can connect with him at neildonaldwalsh.com and uh, also cwgconnect.com. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Again, I love you, appreciate you, and I will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast.